Many traditional events in Albuquerque have been affected by COVID. None have been hit more than the Lobo Cancer Challenge. Joining us now is Amy Leota. She's the Program Operations Director for the UNM Comprehensive Cancer Center and the Event Director for the Lobo Cancer Challenge. Thank you for joining us today, Amy. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So you guys normally, it's a run, right? It's kind of self-explanatory. Well, it's actually, yes, it's a run and bike ride. And so this is going into our fourth year. And typically it takes place at Dreamstyle Stadium, home of the UNM Lobos. And it incorporates a 5K, a 25, 50, and 100-mile bike ride. Wow. And uh, I assume that a run and bike ride is not something that you can actually make happen this, this year. Unfortunately, we can't. You're right. Due to the current um, circumstances, we are going virtual. Um, so we are just thankful to be able to still have our event this year. And I want to get the name out early um, and we'll hit it a couple times. LoboCancerChallenge.org. Um, it's how you can register or just give a, a straight donation or you're still looking for sponsors, I believe. That's correct. Yes. And so what does a virtual run and bike ride look like? Yeah, we get that question a lot. Um, you know, we it's it's actually kind of exciting this year because we're encouraging people to either do the event that they would have originally signed up for. So either the 5K, 25, 50, or 100-mile bike ride. Or being that we went virtual, we're now encouraging participants to create their own challenge this year. And so we've had quite a few participants at, and create their own challenge this year. And some of the ones that they've created are, we have an individual who is creating their own 75 mile bike route this year. Uh, we have someone who's going to challenge themselves. They've never run a 10 K. So they're going to do a 10 K. We have someone, um, who is doing 250 miles from now until, uh, the day of the event on September 19th. So on the 19th, they'll finish their 250th mile between cycling, running, and walking. Um, Individuals from every state can participate. We have someone who plans on climbing Castle Rock in Denver. So anyone and everyone can participate this year. Um, And again, doing what they would have normally done or creating their own challenge. Is there something that you've been wanting to do and, um, you know, this will encourage you and, and, finish your challenge and so the it's a personal goal and then Mm -hmm. your own personal fundraising for your goal kind of like the normal part that is exactly right so this year there there is a registration fee and a suggested fundraising pledge this year and a hundred percent of everyone's fundraising dollars go to support cancer research patient support community outreach, as well as training and education, which supports the UNM Comprehensive Cancer Center. And individuals, yes, and they actually get to pick where their funds go. So when you register for the event, uh, one of the questions under registration is, where do you want your fundraising dollars to go? And they have 19 different areas to choose from. And that was really important to our CEO from year one because, you know, some other events you donate and not quite sure, you know, exactly where the money goes. But when you fundraise for this, you know exactly if you picked breast cancer or you picked 
prostate cancer, you know exactly where your funds are going. And again, we have 19 different areas for, for participants to choose on where their, their fundraising dollars go. And so the cancer challenge is actually September 19th, but you, uh, with a digital version like this, you can participate kind of in any way, I guess. Or, or, I'm sorry, in any time. That's exactly right. Yeah, we encourage if people want to do their event prior, sure, absolutely. Um, but we are still um, encouraging individuals to come together, obviously following physical and social distancing guidelines. Um, but on September 19th, right, because that was the date that our event was supposed to happen in person. And so we still want to keep that date in, in individuals' minds. And so, yeah, go out and finish your challenge that day if you want to do it you know, that weekend, great. Um, but we definitely encourage people to please, you know, if you're on social media, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, please share your photos with us, share your training photos, share your event photos the day of, you know, we, we just all want to come together, um, for, for a great cause. How close to the event can you still register for it? That's a great question. Um, so we are hoping that individuals, because with registration, you do get a T-shirt and bib. Um, so we would like to have people register um, no later than the 14th, um, but certainly understand that it's a virtual event. Um, you know, they may just not get their their T-shirt um, or, or bib um, on time, but we were certainly, certainly do our best. We encourage people to sign up in advance, but... If you want to sign up, we want to have you. So please, you know, register at your convenience. And so tell me how this event started. Uh, you said it's the, this is the fourth year? This is, yeah. It's the fourth annual uh, Lobo Cancer Challenge. So it's our, our main fundraising event for the UNM Comprehensive Cancer Center. And how did it, I guess, how did it begin? Uh, it, it's kind of a crowded space. There's a lot of different running, uh, biking, especially in this area, a ton of biking events, uh, how did this come to be? Yeah, it was just um, thought of our, our leadership of, of creating an event that um, is healthy and, um, of course, gets the community involved and and can support and, and raise funds for the UNM Cancer Center. Yeah. Can you tell me about, uh, you said 100% of the funds raised from this go to one of the UNM Cancer Center charities? They sure do. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, um, so when you register, the registration fee goes towards, you know, putting the event together, t-shirt, bib, et cetera. But of the fundraising dollars, 100% of the fundraising dollars that the participant raise go to the, uh, fund area of choice. I mean, that's an astounding number that you guys yeah. would be wildly proud of. I mean, even in, in a good charity is, is 90%. Uh, and so for it to be 100 percent that's wild well it's, we thank our sponsors and we thank everyone who supports the lobo cancer challenge yeah that's and congratulations on that so uh lobo cancer org. if people want to register and they don't need to run the race right you there's ways that they can donate without actually uh, physically getting involved that's exactly right. Yes, please. LoboCancerChallenge.org. You can register. You can donate. Um, I think what 
is exciting about this year too, and creating your own own challenge is that even if people aren't um, active or want to choose an active challenge, um, many people are choosing something that um, works for them. Meaning that if they are a great seamstress and they want to sew masks for the cancer center, please, you know, absolutely do that. Um, we have some other people who are doing a virtual uh, telethon instead of doing, um, you know, actually getting on a bike or going out and running. And so, again, you know, this is the year to kind of create um, something and individualize it for yourself. Going forward, do you think that you'll keep the virtual angle once the world settles back down? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, well, yeah, the committee will have to talk about that. Yeah, we just we never expected to have to go uh, this route. Um, I don't think any of us expected um, something like this. And so it's definitely something that we will um, we'll be talking about moving forward for sure. Thank you so much for taking the time. LoboCancerChallenge.org. Um, if you wanted to register a team or, uh, again, corporate sponsorship, they're uh, looking for ways to get involved. Uh, and we're going to be talking next about how the Lobo Cancer Challenge supports the UNM Comprehensive Cancer Center. Amy, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Absolutely, Jared. Thank you so much. We're joined now by Ray Ann Payton. She's the Associate Director for Administration and Government and also community affairs for the Comprehensive Cancer Center at University of New Mexico. Thank you for taking the time to talk with us today, Ryan. Thank you very much, Jared. I appreciate it. So tell me what exactly the Comprehensive Cancer Center does. Sure. So we're one of the 51 Comprehensive Cancer Centers that have been designated by the National Cancer Institute. Um, and we're very proud of that designation. Uh, we go through a very rigorous process um, to maintain that designation to ensure that New Mexicans um, have access to world-class cancer center right here at home in our state of New Mexico, and also be able to support patients going through their journey um, here at home with their family and friends who obviously love and support them. So I think people don't think of UNM uh, as a world-class uh, cancer center be just because it's in our backyard because it's something we've always seen there uh, and and people often are down on New Mexico that are from here do you find that to be the case I think it's unfortunate because I think we have a lot to be proud of as New Mexicans and um, I think our center is certainly one of the unique places in our state that really strives to ensure that we provide very safe care for our patients and, and make sure that we are well positioned in the community uh, when patients have questions, whether it's about their clinical care or, um, you know, as a survivor, um, how survivorship impacts their life with uh, working with our psychologists and our clinical team um, or questions about how they access um, community programs that are in the community. Uh, we partner with uh, our patient services team. When patients have a need for uh, overnight stay, you know, if patients um, stay overnight and aren't maybe living in Albuquerque but come from all over the state of New Mexico, um, one of our partners is Casa Esperanza, and we work to provide overnight stays, um, again, with philanthropic support 
and also our fundraising events to ensure that patients have options, um, especially those that can't afford those overnight stays. And also gas. I mean, we also have a program that provides gas cards um, through our patient services program um, because these are real needs that we have. And I think that uh, we want to make sure patients recognize as they start their journey, our center has a very multidisciplinary approach, not only to their care, but also to questions they may have as they're going through their journey as a cancer patient. So how do those sorts of programs kick in that someone gets diagnosed and do you guys immediately start explaining to them all of the resources that UNM uh, Comprehensive Cancer Center has for them? Yeah, so the clinicians have a wonderful group of people that they work with, again, our services program, um, that really is a team uh, with social workers, nutrition, um, navigators, um, people who really work with patients once their clinician has indicated that there is a need and how that need is followed up on with that particular team here at our center and making sure that questions, concerns um, get addressed by the right unit in the center and um, that folks aren't left, you know, with unanswered questions. And I know that cancer isn't the same death sentence that it always has been, but I imagine a cancer diagnosis still is one of the most impactful things that can happen to a family. Absolutely. And I think our center um, is very well positioned again and very well versed with, as a patient does hear that diagnosis for the first time, how do we go about making sure patients um, and their families have access to information? All our newly diagnosed patients receive one of our patient guides, uh, which is also located on our website, that really outlines not only who our team is, uh, their expertise, where they've trained, um, and really um, emphasize these community programs that are available to people in one place when they have the time to really digest um, the journey they're about ready to take. And uh, we give that along with a bag that they're able to carry, you know, all their medical information if they have hard copies that they want to keep with them about their diet, maybe their exercise regimen, who their patient navigator may be, trying to remember who the pharmacist is, all the people that you meet throughout the journey. How do we make that as easy as possible so that folks and their families have that information at their fingertips and uh, can reach out to people when they're ready to talk about uh, needs that they may have and something that they didn't uh, recognize once they are diagnosed. Can you tell me about the way the funding works, the UNM Cancer Center General Fund or the UNM Cancer Center Research Fund? No, absolutely. We couldn't survive uh, day-to-day without our patient services program. And really the programs that support, as I mentioned, overnight stays, whether it's at Casa Esperanza or a gas card or even food um, that people may need while they're going through treatment. So one of the great ways that people can do that, obviously, is through our development support and our partnership um, of the Level Cancer Change. This is a fundraising effort um, that we do every year, have done this be year number four. And this year is a little different um, in the fact that it's a virtual event. But as a participant, you can go online at thelevelcancerchallenge.org 
and really look at all the cancer-specific areas uh, for fundraising. You might have a very strong interest in prostate cancer or breast cancer. And these funds really do support those programs so that our patient services program really um, uses those funds um, to support the outreach that we do for patients that don't have the means, again, for an overnight stay, um, helping them get gas in their car to travel to their appointments, and also help with food if um, that's an issue for patients that are being treated. And you'd mentioned that it's going to be a digital event this year. What are some of the other ways that COVID has impacted the operations for you guys? So I think as um, COVID has obviously hit uh, you know, our state, and uh, one thing that we um, are very uh, proud of is that we've been able to keep the doors open every day here at our comprehensive cancer center at UNM because we knew it was important that patients still had access to treatment and wanted to limit the as much disruption as possible. And as noted um, on our website, we wanted to make sure that we were continuing to deliver safe cancer care for patients and also make sure that we had an environment that was safe and followed protocols in line with uh, not only the state um, guidelines, but certainly following the CDC guidelines as well. And so it's been important to ensure that um, the clinical team has looked at making sure that personalized protective equipment is provided and certainly partnering with our partners at uh, UNM Health and UNM um, Hospital to ensure that folks, you know, do come into a very safe clinical operation. And so uh, obviously there's been some limited access, you know, during COVID especially at the beginning, just to make sure that we are screening everyone that comes through our doors every day, and we continue to do that. And again, making sure that, um, you know, people are wearing the appropriate PPE um, and masks and, you know, following the appropriate procedures, ensuring that we're doing the social distancing, you know, also in the clinical work environment, and um, making sure that um, follow-up visits, whether they're done in person or by video, um, in creating that environment as we've dealt with all the changes uh, that have impacted us based on the COVID uh, pandemic. And I know that clinical trials and cancer research is um, an important part of any cancer institute. Has that all continued? Has COVID um, halted or um, slowed any of the research side of your business? You know, our clinical trials, you know, has allowed us to practice state-of-the-art cancer medicine, not only by expanding, you know, our patients' choices for best available treatments for them, but also making sure that they have access. And we continue to evaluate and open under the leadership of Dr. Carolyn Muller and Dr. Ursa Graham-Glaberman, um, all our clinical trials here that are offered at our uh, Comprehensive Cancer Center and making sure that we're following a very safe practice and enrolling patients on trials, but that has continued. And on the research side of the house, we've certainly uh, worked closely uh, with two uh, leaders in our community and certainly who've been at the table with regards to the COVID pandemic and vaccine options. We were awarded uh, a grant by the National Cancer Institute to develop a vaccine um, uh, that relates to COVID-19 and we have more detailed information 
on our website. And uh, both Dr. Uh, David Peabody and Bryce Chikirian really highlight um, their own research and the project that they're currently working on uh, with regards to uh, different options uh, with regards to a vaccine. So we feel very fortunate that um, you know the leadership and faculty, our staff, and everyone who comes to work every day continues to uh, make sure uh, that we are part of solutions that everyone is looking at with regards to the pandemic. You can add your voice, your funds to help out on this amazing mission, LoboCancerChallenge.org. You can become a challenger for this year's virtual event. Donate, looking for sponsors. Uh, it's more than a month away. There's plenty of time. LoboCancerChallenge.org. Rayanne Payton, Associate Director for Administration and Government and Community Affairs for the University of New Mexico Comprehensive Cancer Center. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Jared, thank you. And if there's anything else we can provide, please let us know. Our website address, in case um, listeners um, don't recall, is cancer.unm.edu. With the time we have left this week, we wanted to focus on something that's on everyone's mind. What does a school year look like in a COVID world? News Radio KKOB's TJ Trout this week caught up with Ellen Burstein from the Albuquerque Teachers Federation to explain what a 2020 return to education in a classroom might look like. And we're back. Thanks for listening. On the line with us right now is Ellen Bernstein, Albuquerque Teachers Federation. Yeah, we've talked for what, about two or three weeks ago, and I figured it was time again just because, you know, the weirdness we're living in, Ellen. So, um, Well, I'm, I'm glad to connect again, TJ. Thanks. So, so since last time we talked, what, if anything, has changed? Has anything changed? It changes daily. So um, I think everybody knows by now that APS decided to postpone in-person schooling until at the earliest after Labor Day. And then our governor, Michelle Lujan Grisham, basically said the exact same thing. So now everybody knows at least one thing, and that is from August 12th through September 8th, remote learning only. Now that makes it a little hard because then the question is, when will in-person start and what is that gonna really look like? Because the hybrid model of sometimes you're in school and sometimes you're not, so we can have small class sizes and separate everybody by six feet, it's a really confusing thing. So all of the staff will also be working with their administrators trying to figure out how to actually implement that model so that when it's safe to go back, we know what we're doing. How are you, are you confident on that September 8th date? I mean, you, or, or is there still just too much up in the air to even be able to say that? I would be surprised if we were safe by then, to be honest, the way things are going. I think it's going to have to be pushed back, but you never know. Everybody could suddenly um, practice all the safety um, recommendations, and uh, we could stop transmitting the virus and have two weeks of flat or declining numbers, and then, you know, the the medical experts will say that it's safe for staff and kids, but... But I, at this point, I'd be surprised. Yeah, how are the teachers feeling right now? Say, uh, some nervous, some some okay with it. What, what's what's the general feeling? 
Well, the more people make decisions about what's going to happen, the better they feel. But they're still very anxious about having the time they need to prepare. They care deeply about whether they connect with all the students and their families, and they're going to be working really hard on that. And then a bunch of them are saying what I just said, and that is September 8th is really too early. Yeah. Okay. I got uh, I, I got an email from somebody I want to bring up with you. I, we had to do a traffic break. We'll uh, take this up right after traffic. Talking to Ellen Bernstein, uh, Albuquerque Teachers Federation. Uh, Kit, in 10 seconds. Hold on. All right. We're back uh, talking with Ellen Bernstein from the Albuquerque Teachers Federation. Man, I wish we had more time because I got a whole bunch of stuff I want to ask you, but, uh, you know, what do you do? Anyway, <laughs> Ellen, I, I got an email uh, from, and I'm going to say, an anonymous education-related person. How's that for being vague, huh? Uh, That's okay. Okay. Who said, okay, so who said they were worried uh, because APS have all these plans to, to keep everybody safe and uh, do all these things to make this work, but they don't have any money. They don't have a budget to back all this up with. Uh Care to comment on that? I, the money is a huge issue. Uh, it's estimated that opening schools safely will cost at least 20% more than we currently have in funding. And we got some money from the CARES Act, some of that the state took credit for when they were balancing the budget. Um, some of the CARES money is going to be available for districts to buy all the PPE, but it's not nearly enough. And that's why there's this big argument right now in Congress about whether they're going to pass the HEROES Act or they're going to pass what the Senate just recommended, how much money will there be for schools, how can we get it to schools. Yeah. Because we have to have money for all kinds of stuff that we don't normally fund. Just as simple as enough hand-washing stations. This is essential money that we need, and we're all waiting to see if we can get it through some mechanism from the federal gov government. Yeah, it, it is, it's interesting, too. It's not interesting. It's kind of daunting because you think it's, it's, this is not just us. I mean, the whole country is going through the same stuff. You know, That's so right. Th there needs to be a major expenditure to make this all work. Uh, one well, of the things that one of the things the guy brought up that I found, you know, just as an example, he said, "Look, think about busing the kids to school, okay? Because they they want to keep the kids, uh, you know, you know, distanced on the bus, but that means they're going to need more buses. Where are they going to get those from? You know, things like that." That's why everybody's talking about this hybrid model. So we're yeah. going to pick up half the number of kids at any given bus stop. Is that still going to be um, the number we need to put them only one per seat? Or, you know, they're usually crammed in there, three per seat, oh, because sure. we can. And yeah. so it's not, yeah, it's it's the number of buses. Uh, educators are really worried about school infrastructure and if they have good ventilation systems. People are saying our bathrooms haven't had hot water for years because the school is so old. Um, some people are saying, seriously, we only have this many bathrooms in a school of hundreds of kids. So we have always made things work. Teachers 
counselors, nurses, we do whatever we need to to make things work. But the stakes are a lot higher now because it's really the life of a child or the life of a, of a teacher that is at stake if we don't get this right. Right. So what are the plans for at-risk, uh, high-risk uh, teachers? Well, right now, during remote learning, they all have the right to work at home. Sure. Then during hybrid learning, the question is still out there. Can I stay with my home school, the community I love, the one I'm invested in, mm-hmm. and still work from home? And we need to do a lot of creative problem solving so that that can happen because there are a lot of educators who are high risk. Yeah. Okay, we got about a minute left, and I always ask you this. What do you want parents to know at this point? I want parents to know that we want to go back to regular schooling. We want to make sure that their child is safe. And if we can't be in in in-person school, then we want to connect with them, make sure that they have a computer, make sure that they have Wi-Fi, make sure that we support their student in all their learning needs. And we're going to do whatever we can to make that happen. Yeah, and then talking about Wi-Fi and computers like that—that's more money too. So hopefully, exactly. Hopefully we can. Hopefully we we can uh, we can figure this out before too long. Ellen, I want to have you on again before the school year starts, if that's okay with you. No problem. I'd love to. Thanks, TJ. Okay, no, I really appreciate you talking to me, Ellen Bernstein, Albuquerque Teachers Federation. This has been Weekly Edition. Thank you so much for listening.